Today we're going to be in John chapter 1. We started this trek through John just a few weeks ago. We only covered the first two verses in the opening time that we walked through this passage, and we saw that told us there who Jesus is, like Jesus is God, that he is the creator of the universe. The next week, we saw just verse 3. We saw what Jesus does, that he created all things, that all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Today, we're just going to creep a little bit further into the text. We're just going to cover two more verses today. I suspect that soon afterward, we'll start taking a little bit uh, greater leaps into the text. But as we get into this introduction, just two more verses will do. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd ask you to turn to John 1. We're going to be in verses 4 through 5. But in order to set that up, I'm going to go ahead and read through verses 1 through 5 out loud together with you. Uh, You can listen along to that. Then we'll pray Go back through the text. What we're going to see is that we're going to need to hone some of our Bible study skills today with some of the words that we're going to run into, and I hope that'll serve you well just by doing that, Uh, but then seek to uh, make some observations and application by the time we we conclude this morning. Uh, Let's go ahead and and read John 1, 1 through 5. I will pray, and uh, we'll dive in a few words at a time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Father, we love you and are grateful for this word. We pray that you would help us to understand what is being said here, that we can internalize it, that it would have an effect on our heart that we would give you greater worship, greater attention, greater adoration. We might understand you and perhaps ourselves a little bit better. That would produce great spiritual fruit in our lives. A large ask, one that is absolutely what you do as typical as a creator God. And so we appeal to you on this affront in Jesus' good and perfect name. Amen. So back, uh, starting in verse 4 again this morning. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This him, of course, is the word. This is Jesus. This is whom we've been talking about the last couple of weeks we've been in the text. Jesus was life. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, right out of of the gate, if we're just to look at this in a Bible study sense, well, let's just look at the words. What are we seeing here? We're seeing words like life. And light. Now, I'll let you know, if in the Greek, this is, these aren't difficult words. These are not challenging. You can find life and light all over the Bible. You can find them definitely in the New Testament. But it might be helpful to note that these words, life and light, are used more by the Apostle John in this gospel than anywhere else by far. In fact, the word life is used 36 times in the gospel according to John, which is more then twice all of the other Gospels combined. The word light, similarly, is used 23 times, which is almost as many as twice all the other Gospel accounts combined. If we were to continue reading, we'll find passages like Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus will say that he is the light of the world. Some very familiar passages have this kind of language there. In fact, if we were to read some of the other writings of the author here, John, either 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, those, those of his letters, or even the book of Revelation, which he also wrote, we're going to find light and life and their counterparts, death and darkness, show up all over John's writing. To be sure, this is very poetic language, but it's conveying some very big truths. Now, just to make this statement quickly so you know this, oftentimes, In the gospel according to John, the word life is short form for eternal life, okay? Many times we'll see life used, and it's just meaning eternal life, and it's made very clear by the context. That's what he has in mind, eternity with God forever because of salvation. But not always. And right here in its first use in this gospel, I don't think that it means eternal life because it is applied broadly to all mankind. 
what I think is being stated here then in that first little clause, in him was life. I think what's being stated there is that all life, all life finds its origin in Christ. All life finds its origin in Christ. He is the source of every living thing. And the life was the light of men. You see, in creation, God made everything that exists. And if you were with us uh, the last couple of weeks that we've been in John, you'll see we talked about that a handful of times. We showed how much this can compare to Genesis chapter 1 in its language and even the words, even the words like light and darkness and life and death, all that will be seen there as well in the Genesis account. But God made everything that exists and that was made it very explicit in verse 3. All things were made through him, the word, Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. You spent an entire week talking about how this is propping up the creator status of Christ. He made everything to include every living thing. But God made mankind different. There was something special, something unique in the way that he made man. In him was life, all life can attribute its existence to Christ. And the life was the light of men. That's mankind, not dogs, not hummingbirds, not fish. Here it's saying the life was the light of men. In Genesis chapter 2, we'll see a little bit of an unpacking of the creation account. In Genesis 1, we saw the six days of creation. It'll culminate in the seventh day of creation. And in, in that passage, all we'll see is God speaks and all things come into existence. He speaks into the darkness, and there's light. He speaks into the void and separates out uh, the the waters uh, from the expanse, and he'll speak birds, he'll speak fish, speak beasts. But in chapter 2, the story hones in on mankind and says something about how God made mankind and how he made mankind differently than he made the rest of all of creation, to include animals. It says this in Genesis 2.7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. A couple things right there. First of all, rather than just speaking man, poof, man comes into existence. He uses created matter to make man. It's pretty interesting. There's something special going on. He gets down nitty gritty. He puts his hands into the soil, so to speak, in the creation of man. It's not just the algorithm of creation that came from his words. There's something special being stated here. And as the form of man was made, God breathes the breath of life, the spirit, into man, and he animates. He became a living creature. It's pretty significant the way the... Genesis account slows down and restates the telling of how God made mankind to show the kind of care and intention. Something special is taking place here. We alone, of all creation, are image bearers. We are made in the image and likeness of God, unlike the birds, unlike unlike the the fish, unlike apes, chimpanzees, other animals that have similar features to humans. We alone are are image bearers of God. We have been given the capacity to know and to relate to God in ways that are entirely different and more deeply than of all animal kind. We can know God, and we can know Him in a far more significant way than any other creature that exists. I think that what John means to convey in this sentence, in Him was life and the life was the light of man, I think what he means to convey right here is that we are a special creation. Woven into our very nature is the light of God. We intrinsically retain a unique relationship with him. And for the record, this is not hyperbole. I'm not just using these superlatives in order to try to make a better point. Not not at all. We are designed to relate to God in a way that is different even than the angels. And we're not just surmising that as we read texts like this. It's actually plainly stated. Let me show you a couple places in Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2.5 says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. 
of which we are speaking, we'll go on to say, but to men. So the new heavens and the new earth are not to be ultimately under the subjection of angels, and we live within that space, but subjected to man. Hebrews 2.16 says this, For surely it is not angels that he, Jesus, helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So Jesus did not descend into creation as an angel. He came to be a man in order to redeem mankind. No other creature, no other creature bears the image of God. This is what must be at the root of how we relate to one another. We must respect each other as fellow humans. We must show honor to one another. Why? Primarily because we're fellow image bearers of God. That's why primarily we are to be showing honor and respect towards one another. In fact, long before the Ten Commandments were given, long before the establishment of thou shalt not murder, what is that referring to? Not referring to killing of animals. We call it murder when a man kills a man. We call it dinner when a man kills an animal. Right? In hundreds of years before the Ten Commandments were given to mankind, God speaks to Noah as he steps off the ark. You remember what happened? He talks talks to Noah. And he tells Noah that because mankind is made special, if any animal needs to be killed for food, you can do that. You can do that. In fact, unclean and clean doesn't seem to be separated yet at that point out in in history, prior to the old covenant being established. But he says that if any animal kills a person, that animal shall be be accountable with its own lifeblood. Kill the animal. That's why when you see on the news like a shark that attacked a person and then um, uh, you know, then people go out and hunt down the shark and kill it. Don't feel bad for the shark. That's what God said to do, literally. But Genesis 9, 6 makes it even clearer what's being stated because now he turns his attention not just to if animals kill humans. He says this about mankind, about murder. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. So why ought men not murder each other? Because chiefly, it's blasphemy. That's why. Because to harm an image bearer is to, in a symbolic way, seek to harm the image he represents. And so we ought to be very careful. I remember talking with a young atheist woman on the street, just doing street evangelism, And uh, at some point, she kind of conveyed that she was an atheist, and I started talking about just the nature of man, just kind of getting to some stuff. And at some point, she brought up abortion. I think she brought it up because it was something that she really had an issue with, with with Christians. So she brought it up. And trying to kind of get down to brass tacks with her, I I, I kind of proposed this scenario, and I said, let let me ask you this question, uh, just to see what you're thinking about the value of humankind. Um, If you were to be standing in front of a pool and a human child were to fall in on one side, and a puppy were to fall in on the other, and both were drowning, and you only had time to jump in and rescue one, which would you rescue? She paused for a second and said, the puppy, because dogs don't grow up to be as mean as people. Now, why, why is that an interesting statement? Well, it exposed something in her, doesn't it? It exposed something truly debased. Truly debased. Because we know in our hearts that mankind is special. In fact, the fact that she can even process through complex hypothetical scenarios that have morality attached is evidence to the fact that she is made different. Now, to be fully honest, and I actually said this to her, I don't believe you. I actually think that your humanity would kick in. I think that your attempt to sound consistent with your views right now will be overridden by something intrinsic inside of you. And brothers and sisters, I don't mean to say that a person couldn't suppress the truth so fully that they actually could act that way to a human. It can happen. But I think the depths of darkness a person has to get to to actually act that way Take great intention. 
Proverbs 20, 27. This is Old Testament language. Listen to this. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. I'll say it again. This is a, just think about this. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. That means that God has put something in us that is a spiritual reality in us that makes it possible for us to even search our innermost parts. No dog says, I think, therefore I am. Do dogs think? Of course. Do animals feel? To be sure. In fact, both a dog and a man can express sadness at the loss of another. Have you ever had a a dog who lost a partner dog, a companion? And you notice, you're like, oh, goodness, look at Fido is sad. You You can see it, can't you? It's real. And another creature. But only an image bearer of God can experience loss and pen the words to God, it is well with my soul. Even our ability to be introspective sets us apart from animal kind. Why? We have been given the light of God. And the life was the light of men. If you had one of those blockbuster movie moments where the aliens uh, come into Earth's atmosphere and they look into what's going down here, who would, they, who would they surmise is the leader of the planet? Who is the top of the food chain? Who is, who is the, the, the one with whom they must contend? Mankind is not even a question to us about this. We have been made separate, special, set apart. No matter how wicked a man may become, this is crazy to think about, no matter how wicked a man may become, no matter how fallen, broken, corrupted, no matter how far he may be given over to his sins, he is still an image bearer of his creator and warrants a kind of honor for that status. So Jesus is the life. And the life, that source, Christ, the origin of all of our life, literally our ability to be alive, was given to mankind in a distinctive way. And that we can say that we have the light in us different than all the rest of creation. With that in mind then, consider the next verse. John 1.5 says, The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. This, this is an amazing verse. In fact, does it sound familiar to you? You heard this verse before? Maybe you've quoted it. Maybe you've, maybe you've remembered this one. Maybe you've taught it to your kids. Um, we have, we have a, a little wood-burning kind of art that one of our friends did many years ago, uh, wall art in our house. That's John 1.5. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. It's a beautiful line. It's, it's, it's poetic and flowy. And, um, but what does it mean? I, I want to confess to you, I have long made some assumptions about this verse by itself that as of this last week, inside of the last seven days, I've started to go, oh, I think I've been viewing that wrongly. Okay, so literally, as I studied multiple commentaries on this from hundreds of years past and the ones that are present and looked at this, I've been, I was amazed to go, oh my goodness, how, how did I not just pause Read the verse before, the, read the verse after, put this in the order and, and understand what's going on. And so I, I confess that some of this is newer to, to my mind even in this last week. And so uh, I, I tread carefully here, but I want to help walk you through a little bit of a Bible study today. Let's ask some questions. Let's first ask, what is the light? And then what is the darkness? And what does it mean that it has not overcome it? Starting with three words, light, darkness, overcome. Let's look at those. Just, just take a few moments to look with me. We, we, we're not going to go super deep into this, but just, just challenge us with me for a moment. The light. What does that mean? Well, in the previous verse, I argued that the light of men meant that we are image bearers of God and have a unique relationship with him, that there's something in us. There's a kind of knowledge of the creator. There's an understanding of who he is that we have the animal kind doesn't have. That was what I argued the light was 
It is Christ in humans, not in others. Not in other creatures, okay? That's what I argued from the previous verse. So is that what's being stated? The light shines in the darkness. The understanding of the intellectual acknowledgement of Christ shines in the darkness. Is that what it's saying? Well, also in this very chapter, the word light is used to refer to Jesus personally. The next three verses are seven through nine. In verse nine, it's made very clear. It's even acknowledges the true light. The true light is coming into the world. Well, Jesus made pretty clear that that's Jesus as we keep going there. So is that what it's being said? Is it Jesus that's the light here? Christ himself? Some see the word light as goodness. Goodness generally. Why? Because we see that all over the New Testament, don't we? That light is goodness where darkness is evil or wickedness, sinfulness. And so that's, and for the record, John uses it in that way like a hundred times. Well, okay, that's the other. Dozens of times we'll see it used in that way. So is that what he means? So you see already right out of the gate, okay, well, we have to know exactly what he means by light. How about darkness? Well, obviously, darkness is the opposite of light, and that makes sense why it's being used here in some kind of contract, contrast. But does this simply refer to the act of creation, as many scholars have seen? Clearly, Genesis 1 and John 1 kind of match up. There's a darkness. God speaks into the darkness. And even that darkness can't resist the creative act of God. So that's the darkness not overcoming the light being spoken in. Okay. So some have seen the act of creation there. An amoral, ambiguous nothingness that couldn't stop the speaking of God into nature or into, into, into nothing to create nature. Some see darkness just as sinfulness. That won't be surprising to you, I suspect, at all, because it's used so often in that way, isn't it? Darkness just means a sinfulness. It's a, it's a, it's a, a lack of that goodness of light. It's a very, very typical way we tend to use it. Uh, I'll, I'll quote for you G. Campbell uh, Morgan. He says it this way, Darkness, only a word, but a word recognizing all human failure. That's a good summary of that idea. Darkness is all summary of all human failure. And if it is to be viewed in that way, just general badness, sinfulness, does this darkness being spoken of in John 1, 5 refer to a particular period of time in history when the world was especially dark, like when Jesus came into the world? Or a different period of time where there's a dark, or a general darkness that is from the fall up until his return? Is that what's being said? So you see? And for the record, you can find views all throughout history that have taken each of those. So already challenging here, uh, the next word multiplies the complication for us. The next word that I want to look at with you is overcome, overcome. And one of the things that makes this challenging is because if you were to look at this word overcome, if you were to type this into like a word search in Bible translations, you'll find overcome used all over by John, even overcoming darkness. But the word is a different Greek word there. So a lot of the passages that I had in my mind, like, oh, that's overcome, overcoming darkness. I kind of threw on my sermon notes before I got into the study of this. I quickly went and, oh, that's actually not, that's not the words being used. Those aren't fair enough comparisons because that's a totally different idea in mind. So what do we do? The word overcome here is more perplexing. It's notoriously difficult for Greek readers. This is one of those passages that is given to you in a, a Greek New Testament, uh, you know, 101. What does this mean? Because it's, it's challenging to go, well, there's a, there's a semantic range here. It could mean a handful of things. It's really hard to understand. I'm just going to show it to you. I'm going to display what I'm saying to you uh, by, by just a quick illustration here. We're not going to, much could be said about this. I had to cut pages out of this. We're, I'm going to give you the summary. If you're reading from the ESV, English Standard Version, that's what I've got up here, or the NIV, or the Christian Standard Bible, or the Holdman Christian Standard Bible, one of those traditions, then you have the word overcome in front of you right now. Go ahead and look at your Bibles right now. You have overcome. However, if you're holding a King James Bible, or a new King James, or one of the earlier two NASB translations, it says comprehend. So just follow me here Read the first one with me. Look at the first verse I got up here. That's the ESV version of John 1, 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's what I just said. We've been walking through. The New King James says it this way. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. 
See the problem? Here's why I'm showing this to you. Because how you view that could actually change and alter the view that you might take with this passage, maybe significantly. Comprehend and overcome in English convey two very different ideas, don't they? One is very intellectual. One is kind of a more physical. But how about the word grasp? One of the translations I found, I think it was the newest version of the NASB, uses the word grasp, and I think it's probably the best word to use here because it conveys both of these ideas. It it shows you the semantic range of both. The range of that word, just with that word. So so it it would read this way. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. You and I know the word grasp. You can grasp a sword with your hand. You can grasp a man by his shirt collar. But you can also grasp something intellectually. You can can grasp a concept, right? That's why I think that's a helpful word, because it really does carry with it the same same connotation, the, uh, the same semantic range that the Greek word does. And so, you may have followed along with that all the way, or maybe not. But here's what I want you to hear. Light, darkness, and overcome are all kind of challenging to know how to interpret them here. I'm just going to give you three summary interpretations of this verse. There are more, but these are kind of the summaries, the ones that in history, faithful, God-exalting brothers in history who've read these, written these things down. This is three quick summaries of what that verse could be meaning. First, God made us in his image, and even in this fallen world, sin is not so corrupted or darkened the minds of men, that we cannot know him. So the light, the knowledge of Christ in us shines that even corruption and sinfulness of of our minds cannot make it that we have no knowledge of him. Okay? That's one view. Second, Jesus was born into the dark and sinful world. This is probably the most common one that I've seen. In spite of the fact that the people did not understand who he truly was. So the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, is a Christmas verse. I've, actually, I've seen it in that way in the past. So around, when December comes around, or if you're in Costco, August comes around, uh, and you see Christmas decorations, you might see this verse. The light shines in the dark, because Jesus came into the world. Right? That's the idea. The light, Jesus, shines in the darkness. Sinful world. And the sinful world hasn't overcome Jesus or hasn't understood him. One of those two. See? That's one. And the third interpretation is this one. Jesus conquered the darkness of this world by his sinless life. No temptation could hold him down. He did not fail. And or his conquest of death on the cross. Right? Now, here's the added trouble. All of those things are true, aren't they? It is true That God gives some knowledge of himself to all humankind, no matter how sinful. That is true. We can find it all over. We also know that it is true that Christ is born into a sinful world and is not not darkened by it. That's also true, isn't it? And it is additionally true that people didn't understand who he was, right? It is also true that he defeated every temptation and he even defeated death itself on the cross. Isn't that also true? And for the record, not only are those things true, those are true and found in the gospel according to John. And sometimes in John chapter 1. So which is it? Well, you could take any of those and not be in major error because those are true things. But as I've been studying this more and more, I've personally concluded that it is the first of those interpretations. I had several notes of pages to explain to you why and realize that's probably not the point of this verse is why your pastor holds one view. So you're welcome to ask me. I'll try to share to you why. But I think that chiefly what John had in mind was that even in this fallen world, sin has not so corrupted or darkened the minds of men that we cannot know him. I don't think Jesus, I don't think the incarnation is yet in mind. I don't think Jesus has yet been born in the flow of John chapter one. I think that comes in verse nine. True light's coming into the world. And then we see the word became flesh. I don't think he's there yet in the flow. I don't think that's what's being stated there. So I think that this is saying essentially what John Calvin writes. I'm going to go ahead and I'm just going to agree with what John Calvin thinks about this verse as well and read to you a summary conclusion from his words. John Calvin wrote, The light which was originally bestowed on men must not be estimated by their present condition. 
So, so you don't look at the sinfulness of man and go, well, there's, God clearly didn't give them image bearer status. He didn't make them special because look at their, look at how wicked they are. They're worse than, they're worse than rhinoceros. They're, they're, they're worse than, than uh, killer whales, they're, right? He continues, because in this corrupted and degenerate nature, light has been turned into darkness. And yet he affirms, he, John, affirms that the light of understanding is not wholly extinguished. For amidst the thick darkness of the human mind, some remaining sparks of the brightness still shine. I I agree with my brother John Calvin. Let's view that. That our image bearer status makes it impossible for us to plead ignorance in our rebellion against God. I didn't know there was a God. No, no one can say that. No matter how sinful, no matter what world they grew up in, no matter what false religion they were taught the entirety of their life, no one can stand before God toe-to-toe at the judgment seat and say, well, I, I didn't know. In fact, this truth, if this is what it's saying, invalidates all excuses for human sin. No excuse. And we know that this is true at least elsewhere. Romans 1.20 says, for his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, all mankind, are without excuse. I actually think that's primarily what's in mind in John 1.5. I think that's the case. And whether or not I can convince you that that's here, I think you can agree with me that is certainly a biblical truth. So I want to give you a few summary observations of these two verses as we uh, land the plane today. First is this. Jesus gave all men life. It's unmistakable that that's that's what John is saying in verse 4. There's no confusion about that. All of us have been given life, and that life comes from Jesus. We're going to deal more of this in a few weeks because the text is going to unpack that idea even more, but it has to be stated here because John is making that claim. Every good thing that we have, even the breath in our lungs, comes from Jesus. So try this one on. Jesus literally gave us life. Then Jesus literally gave up his life Then Jesus literally, again literally, offers us eternal life. All of that is true about him. Jesus gave all men life. There's no evading that observation in this text. Second observation, darkness always tries to overcome light. Darkness always tries to overcome light. We know that from many other passages in the New Testament, especially in John's writings. But darkness is an active force seeking to overcome light. It's an interesting way the language works out here, and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness has not overcome the light. It's not that the light has overcome the darkness. That's one way to have said it, right? No. The darkness has not, in the pushing back, has not seized, has not grasped, has not taken hold of the light. This is our landscape. 1 John 5, 19. Look at this with me. This is another another use of the same kind of idea. The the words aren't present in this exact part. It's part of the whole flow of the the letter uh, John writes here. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay? We are from God. The whole world lies in that darkness and the power of the evil one. And they actually will make the connection with darkness elsewhere in 1 John. This is our landscape. We are lights in a dark landscape. All the Christian life then is active resistance against darkness. That's what it is. You and I live in the world. We live amongst the fallen peoples and the fallen places. We live amongst death and cancer and sickness and sin. Why? Because we're in the flesh. We're still here. And this here, this whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This is not talking about authority, that Christ has been made king over all. This is saying that the world resists that kingship. 
that the world does not acknowledge his right authority because the world lies in the power of the evil one. We are at war. All the Christian life is active resistance against darkness. Creation, in its fallen state, wars against us, even our own flesh. And it is so important that we see this. There are influences everywhere we go. And the Bible speaks of these influences in exceptionally polarizing language. There's no neutral language used with the influences of the world that we interact with. Sinful corruption is surer than gravity. Apart from saving grace and belief in Jesus, there is no overcoming of the world. That's the state. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And I think sometimes we wrongly picture the earth as the battleground, because we get the battle stuff right, right? We picture earth as this neutral battleground upon which two opposing forces are warring. Light, darkness, kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of Satan, spiritual good, spiritual evil. And each of these sides in the battle is rapidly trying to take over more land, more territory, more souls. That's not quite right. That's not quite right. Because it's, it tends to lean into the idea that there's a default neutrality that can then be overcome by one or the other side. And that's not true. The world is presently in the power of the evil one. The enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Every unbelieving inch of this planet, every unbelieving inch of this planet is in active rebellion against God. Unite, don't send missionaries into territories where they arrive and go, hey, darkness hasn't gotten here yet. No. There's either light or there's dark. 1 John 5, 4 through 5, later in this, earlier in this exact same chapter I'm showing you here. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Praise God. If you're born of God, you're saving faith in Jesus, you overcome the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. So again, it doubles down, not by, not by your, your human ingenuity and your stick-to-itiveness and your, your stubbornness to crawl your way out by your good works. No, faith is the victory that has overcome the world. And verse 5 says, who is it that overcomes the world? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Think with me. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, you're a believer, you have overcome the world. If a person does not believe Jesus is the Son of God, they have not overcome the world. They are in the power of the evil one. Tracking. This should not be surprising. If you've, if you've heard a dozen sermons here, at some point we've, we've pointed to this a little bit. There is no such thing as neutrality. There's no such thing as ground that has not yet been taken by either side. There's no such ground that exists. There's no such souls that exist that the enemy says, ah, let's leave them on their own. God can have them. Nowhere. And additionally, there are no peoples, there are no people groups, there is no territory that Jesus goes, I don't really have to demonstrate my authority over those over time. No. Every square inch of creation is to be overcome. Where there is unbelief, that is enemy territory. Where there is unbelief, that is enemy territory. This is why the Bible, listen, this is why the Bible continually tells us to be alert, to put on your armor, to prepare for battle, to take your days seriously. Why? It's not like, hey, you're not really in a battlefield where you are. You can just, you can just sit down. It's not a big deal. But if you're on the front lines, that's where you got to be wearing your armor. No. Everywhere is the front lines. You're checking this? And why? Because creation is not just that property out there. Creation and the world that lies in the power of the evil one, that, that natural worldliness is not only across the street in your atheist neighbor's household or in that temple, Mormon temple up on the hilltop. Our flesh is a part of this world that wars against us as well, right? So we are to daily, daily prepare for battle. Everywhere we go, we're on the front lines. This world is actively warring against our souls. 
That's why we're told to put on the whole armor of God, be able to stand. Stand against what? Not flesh, but the rulers, authorities, against the cosmic powers over, over this present darkness. You see this language everywhere. The world lies in the power of the evil one. The world is in this darkness. We are to take our stand against it with the whole armor of God. The world is warring actively against your souls and the souls of your children. You know, as a church, we put a stake in the ground a long time ago on some of this stuff, years ago. And this is something that we've been committed to and continue to do. We believe that as pastors, the brothers who are elders at this church, believe that as pastors, it's our job to warn you of potential threats. This is why when we first arrived out here in Utah, I was just flabbergasted by the many, 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 many pastors that I talked with who love the Lord, love the gospel, preach from the word, love, love the truth, and say, but we'll never mention Mormonism. Why? We don't want to offend some wolves, man. Listen, I have rejected that from day one, and I reject it today. Why? Because as a pastor, one of my charges is to warn you of potential threats. That's what I'm supposed to do, and that's what the pastors are supposed to do here. And so from the very beginning, stake in the ground at the Mission Church, this is one of the things that you'll find different about us than many other, even Christ-exalting, Bible-preaching churches out there. We want to warn you. I want to be the guy who almost annoyingly stands next to you and goes, what? Wolf! See out there? That's a wolf! Wolf, wolf, wolf! Right there! He wants to devour you and your kids. His name is Mormonism, and he's lying to you, and he will try to deceive. Don't go near that one. People, geez, Rich, we got it. No, you don't. You have to hear. And when we see another wolf, worldliness. Worldliness is right there. It's a pack of them. We want to cry that out loudly. We want to shriek that. We want to, we want to make it so clear. And I don't want to go, well, I don't want to offend anybody around. So there may or may not be a wolf somewhere in that vicinity. I'm not doing that. And I'm well aware that as an imperfect person, and as imperfect men who help lead this church, we may occasionally go, wolf, and someone goes, hey, Rich, that's actually a poodle. Oh, sorry. That may happen. But we want to warn you. You know, many people get very uncomfortable with clear distinctions. Wolf, sheep. But it's not men who invented these statements. God did. If there are influences in your life who have authority over you, who have influence over you, who you have authorized in some ways to speak into your life, if they are not in the light, they are in the darkness. They are enemies of God, not friends of God. They are either disciples of Christ or disciples of the world, children of God or children of the devil, those who are spiritually alive or spiritually dead. There are no sheep-goat hybrids out there. They don't exist. And it's the job of pastors to warn. And we are committed to warning you, even these warnings that are uncomfortable to people. Goodness. I hope that we never, ever stop doing that. You know, recently there have been some conversations. It's usually this time of year. This time of year, there have been conversations about Christian education. We love talking about homeschool and putting your kids under Christian discipleship. And we like warning people of the, of, of the errors of the world and watch out for your kids. We love them. We want good for them. And so we bring this up quite often. And on the occasion that, the, that something in the world kind of arises and we get to talk about it again, it brings it back to a topic of conversation. And the Lord has been very kind and good for brothers and sisters to refine language. And how should we talk about this? How can we honor each other as we're all trying to seek to do the right thing here? We all want to honor the Lord. Now, one of the things that I just keep thinking about over and over and over, as a pastor, I'm going to be a watchman on a tower. You're going to have brothers and sisters in your life that are supposed to operate like that for you, responsible to ring the bell when we see potential threats. We are well aware that sometimes when you ring the bell loudly, those who are warning might push back, man, that's loud. Can you stop? Goodness. No, it's advancing. Ring, 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 ring. We want to be the kind of people who take seriously the fact that this world lies in the power of the evil one. There's no neutrality here. Either people in your life are going to be helping you become more like Christ or more like the devil. That's your options. And no, some wolves are way more of a threat than others. Some have more teeth and are stronger than others. That's, of course, sure. But it's the job of us who love you because we will be held accountable for how we warn the sheep. Did you warn them? Yes, Father, I did. Did you warn them? Yes, I rang it as loud as I could. 
And why'd you stop? Well, they didn't like it. Stand before the Lord on that. Brothers and sisters, darkness always tries to overcome the light. It doesn't exist in the ether, and as long as you don't poke it, it won't hurt you. It's death, very sure. Another principle we can observe here, the darker the mind becomes, the more foolish the gospel appears. The darker the mind becomes, the more foolish the gospel appears. Sin has a corrupting and darkening power, doesn't it? Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, so these are people that started with the knowledge of God, they knew it, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were, who remembers the word? Hearts were darkened. If you're not a believer today, you need to know this. You are a sinner. We preach from that standpoint. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You deserve the just judgment and wrath of God. The punishment, because you live in his house, and you broke his rules, and he gets to tell you what happens next. And the wage of that sin is death. Hell for forever. That's the wage. And all of us deserve it. And I've met so many people before who are like, well, I don't, I don't get that. It doesn't make sense to me. Your mind is corrupt. You're trusting even your, your mind. Do you not even realize that you've been turned over to a debased mind? All the parts of you, your faculties even, aren't operating like they should. You must wake up, acknowledge your sin before God, repent of those sins, and turn in faith to Jesus. The only uncorrupted mind that's ever existed. Who never got progressively dumber over time by living in this fleshly body. But because of his sinfulness was the perfect man. Didn't deserve any death. Deserved a righteous exaltation. Deserved eternal life. He goes to the cross to bear the penalty for those who, unlike him, sinned against God. And by faith in that sacrifice, we can have eternal life. And just as Jesus died on the cross but raised from the dead, you and I can be raised to new life as well. Repent of your sins. Turn in faith to Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's the charge. Don't wait. Just believe him. And then join the fellow brothers and sisters who each morning must wake up and take on the darkness all over again. Overcome it by the light of Christ. Expose your sin. Crush it. Because the darker the mind becomes, the more foolish the gospel appears. Have you ever observed this kind of thing happen in somebody's life, maybe even in your own? Wherever you give up ground, the enemy establishes outposts, footholds. And the more you cave on sin in your own life, the more foolish the gospel will seem. And this happens. Have you observed this? I've observed this happening so many times, even in just my my young-ish lifetime, where there have been pastors who just stopped talking very clearly about certain sins. And then all of a sudden, they're wearing a rainbow bracelet because, you know, their neighbor, their neighbor just wants to know that they love them. And then a few months or years later, well, maybe homosexuality is not really a sin. And then eventually, the gospel's gone. Why? Because this has a creep effect. And if you have secret hidden sin in your life and you're not dealing with it, that will do damage to the gospel in you. Don't think that it won't. Don't think that somehow you can partition out this one little portion of your life. I let darkness reign there, but not over here. doesn't work. That darkness will not stay in its bucket. The darker the mind becomes, the more foolish the gospel appears. This is, this is no surprise then when our world is going more foolish on the more, most basic things that could possibly be true. When they're so far gone, the gospel is so far gone. We should be so grateful for a God who penetrates through that darkness, no matter how many layers of it. And yes, by miraculous works, he does all the time save people out of the most corrupted parts and thinking of their mind. But brothers and sisters, we must not yield to the darkness in any category of life. You can either live in the light or succumb to the darkness. You can either daily wake up and expose darkness, expose sin. Whoa, look at that shadow. Didn't see that yesterday. And, and commission others around you. With the, with the lamp of God's word, man, this language, we could do so many sermons on this language. It's all over the Bible. And, and have God let there be light into those sinful parts of your life. 
Some of you, even as believers, as you're sanctified, you, you may get to parts of your life where all of a sudden the Lord exposes some sin in you you weren't, you weren't even attuned to before. It's the kind of thing that two weeks before, if your brothers or sisters in accountability are asking you about your sins, it didn't even come to mind. You didn't really think about it. And now it's like, oh my goodness, the Lord's pressing on this. It was always there. And in his good patience, he had been waiting to deal with it because I would have died if he did all of that at once. We must be people of the light. We must hearken back to our created status as image bearers. Christ tells us that we are to be lights shining in the darkness. He even says, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You and I have been commissioned by Jesus not only to live in the light, but to be the light in the darkness. Not only to just merely acknowledge the presence of God Acknowledge that he exists and he deserves our worship, but to let that acknowledgement swell and grow over all of our lives until there is no darkness left. And I'll I'll tell you what, that's not going to happen while you're still alive in this body. He who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion, not tomorrow, or the day after, or the day after, but at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, at the final end, when your filthy rag of a body is gone and you're given a new, fresh, brilliant, glorious white one. Brothers and sisters, we must embrace this. We've been given this charge. Every image, of, image bearer of God has been given this charge. Everyone. No one is exempt from this. And as believers, we must carry this light, push back in the darkness in our own lives and those around us that we love. We must ring the bell when we see the wolves, when we see darkness creeping in. We must not fall for the idea of neutrality. But there's some places that just aren't really harmful. We must be careful and obey the commands of Christ to be the light shining before others. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We ask that you would challenge us with it. Father, this specific challenge that I've leveled to my brothers and sisters here and the ask that I have for you, Father, is for you to send your spirit into the hearts and lives of my brothers and sisters here today and help them to expose more sin, more folly, more error, more wrong thinking in their lives. Weed all that out, mine all that out, and replace it with right thinking, righteous living, a better understanding of the gospel, and joy overflowing, Lord. That those things would overflow into the world and others would take note and say, there is something special, there is something different about those who acknowledge this God. We love you, Lord, and we need great help with it because our sin wars against us every day, just like the darkness out in the world wars against us every day. Help us to think rightly, to see rightly, to love your word and use it as a lamp unto our feet. We thank you for this great, great word that we get today. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.